we uh, <clears throat> left off on page 13, and uh, so just um, we probably need to get running. <laughs> and what we're doing, we still got quite a bit of territory to cover. <clears throat> but we were looking at the fact of the Holy Spirit, and um, we were coming off of page uh, 12. We were looking at the Holy Spirit's ministries in the dispensation of grace and how unique it is uh, from past um, ministries. And so when you look at the earthly ministry of Christ, and we were looking at the fact that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. So this is very significant. Uh, so we looked at um, John chapter 7 and verse 39, right? The Holy Spirit had not been, yet been given. So you cannot compare the ministry of the Holy Spirit today to the ministry during Christ's earthly ministry. And just to give you that scripture again, so you'll have it, John chapter 7 and verse 39. So here's a line of demarcation. And so you see a lot of things that the Lord prophesied that were going to happen that was different. And so you can't just assume. And this is one of the fatal fallacies that a lot of people make in interpreting scripture. They make the assumption that everything is the same all the way through. From the Old Testament to the New, nothing's changed. God's done the same thing all the way through. And once you make that distinction, or you, you, don't, you fail to make a distinction from that, and you make that your premise, you are not going to understand Scripture. I promise you, you won't understand it, and you're going to be a heretic. You will be a heretic. And so you have to look at what God is doing and can't make the assumption that God is doing the same things that he's always done. Because he has changed his activities. Again, I'll tell you, in Hebrews, a lot of people would like to use that scripture and say, well, no, God doesn't change. Of course, his nature doesn't change. But he can change his activities. Thank you very much. And he doesn't have to ask you or me. He's not like your local politicians today where he's going to ask you, can I do this, Cherie? Could you pretty please allow me to be able to change my activities? He's not going to ask you. And he has done it. And here you can see it in John chapter 7 and verse 39. Notice in verse 37, in the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This, but this spake he of the spirit, which uh, they that believed on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given. Oh, must have made a mistake there, right? Based upon what we, we hear, everybody else saying, oh, the Holy Spirit's the same way back in the, the uh, Christ's earthly ministry as he is today. Now, this is very significant because when we see what the Holy Spirit is doing today, if he was not yet given, how could they have been regenerated? How could they have manifest godliness? This is so significant. And so what we want to do is we want to make God do what we want him to do. And we won't let him do what he has done. And so this is why I believe that the church is in the state that it's in. The chaos that you see in the church is a direct correlation to what you see with this kind of misinterpretation. Right. And so notice he says, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, isn't that clear to see? Now, you can know Greek, Hebrew, you know, whatever, whatever language, Japanese. It's clear to see. 
And so I like what Don says. It's the people that can't even read English. Right? That's the problem. I mean, so this, you can see this in English. And so you see that, that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. And so he's doing a different kind of ministry. And that was a temporary bestowal of the Spirit was given to the disciples until the day of Pentecost. The disciples were told by the Lord before his ascension of the coming of the Holy Spirit, who would empower them to be witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and the utmost parts of the earth. And by the way, please don't make this the Samaria of your life. He's not talking about your Samaria. He's talking literally about Samaria. This sounds funny, right? You laugh. But people, oh, no, no, he's not talking about real Samaria. It's the Samarias of your life. And this is, this is silly. It's silly. We wouldn't do any other literature like this. But when it comes to the Bible, people lose their minds. They just, their minds, they just check their minds out. Like, <laughs> they don't even, it doesn't, like, they don't even, they're not even reading something of consequence. And so, uh, also, there are many disciples doing Christ's earthly ministry who were unfamiliar with the existence of the Holy Spirit at all. Now, we saw that. Now, let me show you again, because this, this is worth pointing out. Acts chapter 19. Now, again, we see that the book of Acts is a book of transition. You're transitioning from Christ's earthly ministry into what we now know is the church. This did not happen overnight. In fact, it's up until A.D. 70 that the Jews are still wanting to go back under law. It wasn't until the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 that that was removed, right? And so you still have this kind of a strange relationship where you're, they're finding out, oh, this is what God's doing, right? That you have Jews and Gentiles in the same body. And so notice, um, where, are we, where are we going? <laughs> Oh, Acts 19. <laughs> I forgot. I got a short memory span anymore. <laughs> Acts 19. But notice what happens here. So you had John's disciples. And remember, John's baptism was a baptism to all the people of Israel. Right. And then you had Jesus. The Lord had his disciples. Remember, there was a controversy in Luke 11. Uh, John's disciples came to the Lord and says, could you teach us how to pray as John taught his disciples to pray? So you had two things going there, right? Well, they, they didn't have the same. They didn't have the same understanding. So John taught his disciples what they say is the Lord's prayer. That is not the Lord's prayer, really. The Lord's prayer can be found in, in uh, John chapter 17, right? And so you have these things going. So all of these have to coalesce and be brought together. And it didn't happen overnight. So now you had John's disciples who were going around and there wasn't a memo that was sent out and broadcast on the evening news. This is a new dispensation. A new dispensation has arrived. And this is how we're doing it. Jews and Gentiles are in the same body. No, they didn't hear that. And this is why you can have what happens here in Acts 19. Verse 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. Now, notice we're going to find that these disciples are John's disciples. And he said unto them, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? 
And they said unto him, we have not so much heard whether there be a Holy Spirit. Now, how do you square this? When you see back in Acts chapter one, you had the Holy Spirit come on the day of Pentecost. But you have this group of people who hadn't received the Holy Spirit. And so notice in in verse three, he says, and he said unto them, unto what then were you baptized? And he said, they said unto John's baptism. Now, we know that John the Baptist uh, preached a baptism of repentance. Hold your finger there and turn right over to Acts 13, 25. Here's a good scripture to tell people and to show people what John's baptism was about. And this is just beautiful when scripture interprets scripture, right? You just let scripture interpret scripture, right? Notice in Acts 13, 25. And start with verse 23. And of this man's seed has God... Uh, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus, when John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of what? Israel. Right? So this is so important because there's the uh, preconception of a lot of people that the Gospels were written to the believers in the church today. And that John's baptism is a baptism and he's preaching it to the whole church today. Repent, the kingdom from the heavens are at hand. Well, we see right here, John was preaching to the nation of Israel. So his disciples were a part of that. And so that's why he says here in Acts 19, and he said unto them, unto what then were you baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people, and that's Israel, that they should believe on him who should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of of the Lord Jesus. Uh, And so notice uh, in verse six, and when Paul had laid hands on him, on them, and this was something, again, that was not normal. You see it again in Acts 8, where when the uh, believer, the, the people believed in Samaria, that uh, the apostles came down from Jerusalem and they had to lay hands on them for them to receive the Holy Spirit. That's not happening today. That's not how God is doing it today. You receive the Holy Spirit the moment you, relieve, you believe the facts of the gospel. So how do you account for these, this, these differences here? Well, Here's how we account for it. You let it say what it says and you apply it to the people it belongs to. And the scripture makes perfect sense. You see, and that's where um, a lot of the problems are coming in. And so notice then. And so in verse six, and when Paul had laid hands on him, upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spake with uh, tongues and prophesied. Now, did you speak with tongues and prophesied when you were saying? That is not a line of demarcation for being saved today, that you speak with tongues. But you have people who say that. But this was something that happened in the transition, and it is not happening today. And so they and so they uh, the Holy Spirit's ministry and the dispensation of grace was discussed by the Lord before his departure. Now, notice in um, John chapter 16, we have something really interesting said here. Concerning the, the uh, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit when he um, took up residence on the earth is that he was going to do something. Remember, excuse me, in John 10 that we had said before that the father was the one that drew people to Christ during his earthly ministry. Now you're going to see something different. 
that the Holy Spirit is the one that's interacting with unsaved men. But that wasn't the case during Christ's earthly ministry. This is something completely different. So notice in John chapter 16 and verse 8. Well, go back a little bit. Uh, We'll get some context in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient or really it's of benefit to you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And so the son left and he ascended and went and took his place at the right hand of the father. And the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost. And notice what happens. He prophesied when when um, the Holy Spirit would come. Verse eight. And when he has come, he will reprove the world. Now, notice what is he what is he going to convict? I would say convict the world of three things. Of sin. And it is so important to let the language say what it says here. So what is sin? Sin is singular. Singular. Right. Now, why am I saying that? Because, again, I go back to the sinner's prayer and you don't really see the sinner's prayer in Scripture. And so what is the premise of the sinner's prayer? Well, you've got to confess all of your sins. Well, what if you forget one? Are you saved? What if I don't get them all? And then you got to ask for forgiveness of all your sins. Then you'll be saved. Okay, sounds great. Can you point that out in scripture for me? Where do you find that? This is what you find. And why do we emphasize that sin being singular? Because it's a singular sin that he's going to convict people of. They sin All of the other sins that they commit is because they don't believe, you see. And notice what he says here, and he's going to to tell you that. We don't even have to guess. And when he comes, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, and what is the sin? Because they believe not. Now, did I make that up? Or did you see it with your own eyes? Because they believe not and notice of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. And so now the Holy Spirit has taken up a new ministry. Now, turn your you can turn over to Second Corinthians four, four. And I want to put it with this. Here's the picture. So I'm going to save you some time. And, you know, I was talking to someone this weekend and they were didn't understand this. And as they saw what scripture said, they were so relieved that they didn't have to be feel like that they were an evangelist. Now, second Corinthians four, four, notice what happens here. It says this, that uh, here's the picture. You're dealing with unsaved people and the unsaved people are blind. Now, I don't care. You can give them all kinds of food. You can get, you can have all kinds of Plans of having parties and and all this stuff for them, that's not going to remove the blinder. Only the Holy Spirit can remove the blinder. And none of the schemes and things you come up with are going to remove that blinder from the unsafe man. And if you can remove that, then I would suppose you're their savior. God has to intervene and it has to be supernatural. And so notice he says here in in 4, in whom... uh, 
verse three, Paul says, but if our gospel or since our gospel be hidden. Now, what's the backdrop of Paul saying this? These false teachers were trying to um, they had their their different things that they were doing to try to lead people to the Lord. And they're trying to impress upon Paul that you have to change your tactics. Doesn't that sound familiar today? Oh, you, you're not doing it right. I had a guy say one time, I met this guy, he was a church planner in Oregon, and it was almost a field of dreams type evangelism. If you build it, they will come. And this is, no, this is a real policy. They believe that if you want a church of 5,000, you have to build a church of 4,000. And so however many people you want to get in that church, you have to build the church to that number. And the people will psychologically, they'll come. This is by the Northwest CBA, believe this. And so, and so this is where people are on that. And they think that it's on them to do it. But Paul says, notice, and we'll start with verse one of chapter four. What did he say here? Therefore, seeing that we have this ministry, we, as we have received mercy, we faint not. But we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. And that's what a lot of these false teachers were doing at Corinth. Not walking in craftiness. What is craftiness? It's when you just do anything, you're able to turn and do whatever it takes in order to get the thing uh, to convince somebody of what you want to convince them of. Like, kind of like a used car salesman, right? Not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Remember we had talked about that one of the characteristics of these false teachers at Corinth is that Paul says, I will not go beyond what I have the authority to do, what God has given me. These false teachers, that don't matter to them. There's a line that God isn't even giving them the authority to do something. They go beyond it, you see. The line doesn't matter to them. They, they will do whatever it takes. And so he says, not handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, but since our gospel be hidden, it is hid to them that are lost or them that are perishing. In whom the God of, and notice that word world is actually the God of this age has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the glorious light, uh, the, uh, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is in the image of God should shine unto them. Do you see why you need the Holy Spirit to convict them? None of the ploys of, uh, of uh, the church or people are going to change the minds of unsaved people. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so you can say, well, there's thousands coming, thousands. Well, we'll see what happens at the Beatmanship Judgment. How many of those thousands are going to be there? I really think what's happening in many of your churches is you're just doing nothing but bringing a lot of tares in. Remember the song, Bringing in the Sheaves? You can change that to bringing in the tares. That's all they're doing. That's all they're doing. And so you have this convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And the word convict is eklego, which means to refute or to confute. Generally, it's with the suggestion of the, the shame of the person convicted. And so the word has the connotation of exposure to cast a light upon the subject so that which has been hidden comes to light. The Holy Spirit causes the unsaved man to see his sins. Men are not told, or really in that instance, his sin. Men are not told in scripture to cause unsaved men to see sins. 
Scripture does not tell believers that the law will convict the unsaved man of their sin. Scripture states that it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit today to convict the unsaved man of their sin. The sin that he convicts them of is the sin of unbelief, which you've seen. Um, and the notion that the unsaved man has to look at all of his sins and deal with them. We, again, I'm, I'm still waiting for the scripture on that. I mean, can does anybody know where you can find that? I mean, maybe I, don't, I'm, I haven't seen it. It's talked about all the time. So it's got to be in scripture, right? It's, it's just interesting. The Holy Spirit is told, uh, it is told, would be a guide for believers. And so notice you see that in uh, John chapter 16 and verse 13. Now, he's not a guide for the unsaved man. The only thing that he's dealing with with the unsaved man is in salvation. So this is important to understand. The Holy Spirit is not working within the minds of the unsaved people. They're going to be they're going to do whatever it is that they do. The Holy Spirit is not guiding them. He's not trying to direct them. They're unsaved. They're unsaved. And so uh, I don't know. I, I know we're shocked when we see unsaved people do things, but we ought not to be. <laughs> John 16, verse 13. Here's the upper room discourse. The Lord is talking about things that are going to happen. We just saw some of the things that he said is going to happen. Verse 13, he goes into what's going to happen uh, in a ministry with believers when the Holy Spirit comes. How be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you are really declaring to you things to come. And notice just as also verse 14, he shall glorify me and he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. And by the way, please don't pray to the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to ask to pray to the father in the character of the son, you see. And so all communication today is going to the father. It's not even going to the son. It's to the father in the character of the son. Now, notice the Holy Spirit is told uh, would be a guide. Now, this word for guide is the word hedegeo, uh, which is defined by Lowell Nita in his lexicon as to direct with the implication of making certain that people reach an appropriate destination. Um, notice it's used by the Ethiopian eunuch over in Acts chapter 8 and verse 31. Now, this is an interesting thing because there's a lot that you learn here. One thing that you learn is I think that you see a classic example of what an evangelist looks like. And so an evangelist is led by the Holy Spirit to go up to people cold turkey that he doesn't know. And uh, you and I could go up to people cold turkey, and I've done that before, and I've not gotten a lot of good receptions. <laughs> I don't know, maybe you've had better reception than I have. Uh, but the one with the gift of evangelism has the ability to do that. Notice he, uh, the Holy Spirit leads him, notice, and, and over to this place where this Ethiopian is in verse 27. And he arose and he went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of, Ethi of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all of her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, and was returning and sitting in his chariot and, I, and, re and read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. Now, I believe this is how the Holy Spirit is working 
in uh, those who have the gift of evangelism. Just in short, I believe the person that has the gift of evangelism can go up to people they don't know. Cold turkey. They don't have to know them. They don't have to have a relationship with them. But the person that is a believer, you and I as believers, we witness in how we live our life. And the way that we, we conduct our life. First Peter 3.15, set aside Jesus as Lord in your heart. Always be willing to give an answer to who? The one who asked you about the hope that is in you, right? But an evangelist is unconstrained. As the Holy Spirit guides them, they can go up to people that they don't know. Interesting thing is, not every believer is an evangelist. And yet, we, do you even hear this guy talked about? This person talked about as an evangelist? You don't even hear churches talking about people with this gift. And I, I suspect what has happened is many of your people that have that gift of evangelism, most of them think that they're pastor teachers. And this is why you can go to churches and you hear a salvation message every Sunday. Because all they're focused on is getting people saved. You see? And so notice in verse 28, and so he was returning and he was sitting in his chariot and he read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, go near and join yourself unto this chariot. Philip ran thither to him and he heard him read the prophet Isaiah. And he said, understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, how can I except some man guide me? Right. So here's our word there. And it's the idea of how what the Holy Spirit will, will do to guide the life of the believer. And so the Holy Spirit's there, I believe, um, at the beck and call to guide the believer. The question is, will we let him? Of course, he's not going to make us do it. Uh, and so the, you can see that in that Ethiopian unit. Now, the word is used uh, of the Pharisees in a negative sense to emphasize the bad influence upon those that they were leading. The Holy Spirit's focus would not be on himself. The Holy Spirit speaks things that he desires uh, to speak. Uh, and we saw that in verse 13. The Holy Spirit's focus would be to glorify Christ. Now, notice the Lord told Nicodemus that one had to be born by the Spirit to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is different. Notice in John chapter 3, you see something different concerning the kingdom from God than you do concerning the kingdom from the heavens. Now, hold your finger in John chapter 3, as you turn over there, and turn back to Matthew 3, 11. Or actually, go to Matthew 3, 1. <clears throat> now, notice, then this is the kingdom from the heavens. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, the kingdom from the heavens is at hand. And notice what they had to do. They had to repent and have a change of mind in order to be baptized on this baptism of repentance. In verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water. And I would say not unto, but because of repentance. He's not baptizing them so they will repent. He's baptizing them because they repented, you see. And so, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so notice, where's the ideal of um, um, regeneration here uh, and, and being born uh, by the Holy Spirit? You don't see that there. But notice in John chapter 3, 
Verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night. And oh, by the way, the, all of those in the kingdom from the heavens are, that would have been in the kingdom from the heavens, God had a covenant with Israel as a nation, right? Not all of those in that nation were believers. That is really important to understand. He made a covenant with a nation of people and not all in the nation were believers. And you're not going to have all of Israel be Israel, according to Romans chapter 11, until when? God's going to take them into the wilderness in the tribulation period. He's going to plead with them and he's going to separate the rebels. By the time you get to the end of the tribulation period, then all of Israel will be Israel. You cannot compare that to what he's doing in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, every single person in it is saved. Every single person in it is saved, you see. And so notice he says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. Now notice, this is patronizing that he said, oh yeah, we know you're a teacher. It got to be a teacher, one of many, <laughs> for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, they really didn't want to give him that, but they saw the miracles. And so they had to give accord to him some kind of relationship with God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, I just like the way the Lord just cuts to the chase and gets to the point. <laughs> Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he is he cannot or really he does not have the power or the ability to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said unto him, how can a man be born when he's old? And Nicodemus is thinking physically. He's thinking, how is a man going to get back into his mother's womb and be born again? This doesn't make any sense. Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born. And I would say here that word of is out from water and that and would be and I would translate that even of the Holy Spirit. Right. He cannot, he is not able to enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born out from flesh is flesh, and that which is born out from spirit is as to its substance, spirit. And so this just blows Nicodemus' minds that he's talking about something, a spiritual relationship, a spiritual birth, right? Nicodemus is thinking on physical things, right? And he doesn't understand this. And I just, I just love, like, I like the way J. Vernon McGee says, he goes in there as the leader or the teacher of Israel, the teacher par excellence. And after the Lord was through with him, all he could call him, all he could really be, all he was really needed to be called was little old Nicky. <laughs> I mean, the Lord just chopped him down to size, right? And he's this great teacher. And when the Lord gets through with him, he doesn't even know and notice what the Lord says to him. And this was kind of just getting a dig at him. And I, I, don't, I wonder what Nicodemus thought when he said this. In verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou not a master of Israel, but the teacher of Israel? You call me a 
person come from God, but you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand what I just told you. He really chopped them down to size. And so notice what happens there. And so the Holy Spirit is able to regenerate uh, someone in order for them to actually uh, believe. And so the Lord told Nicodemus about this, that the Holy Spirit regenerates a man, a fact that Nicodemus had no knowledge of. The Lord told his followers that the Holy Spirit is the one that gives life. This word quickens is that he's the one that gives life. Notice in John chapter 6 and verse 63. Um, out of out of uh, the various chapters in the book of John, I like John chapter six. It's just an intriguing chapter. Uh, I like eight. That's fascinating to me. But six is really interesting. I just like the interplay in there. Just kind of the way my mind works, I guess. <laughs> I just like the interplay with what what he's doing here and, and how he reveals to the Jews some of the things he reveals. Now, notice, go back in verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured. Well, what were they murmuring about? Well, he told them that he was the bread that came down from heaven. Unless they eat of, eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, they would have no part to him. And notice in verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, does this offend you? What if you shall see the son of man ascend where he was before? It is the spirit that quickens or or really it's to give life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not. And who should betray him? And so you see this idea of the Holy Spirit is the one that was the life giver. That word quickens actually the word uh, zo, uh, poeo, which is used in scripture to emphasize the importation of life. Thayer defines it as to cause, to live, to make alive, to give life. The word is used in the Septuagint several times in the Old Testament to emphasize the importation of physical life. In the New Testament, the focus is on regeneration. And so uh, you see that in a couple of places. Notice in um, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 6, and it's uh, contrasting the old uh, covenant versus the new. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And notice, and we'll start with verse 1. Therefore, seeing that we, uh, I'm in (laughs) 4. Paul says, do we again to commend ourselves or need we as uh, some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Now, this is interesting because what's happening there is that these false teachers, that's what they did. They need letters of commendation in which they validated these each other. And so notice he says, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For so much as ye manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust we have through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God or from God, who also has made us able ministers of the uh, a new covenant, a quality of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit or by the spirit for the letter killeth, but the spirit gives life. And so all that the law could do 
it produced death. It was not able to produce life. Here's another scripture where I think that we can use, and I think it would be safe to say to show that the law, those could, they couldn't be regenerated by observing law. The law couldn't produce life. The Holy Spirit does, you see. Now, again, if that's the case, then you begin to look at the different activities of the Old Testament saints and the activities of the believer in this dispensation in a completely different way. And why? And I keep going back to the fact it's not because we're better. It's because of what God is revealing. He's revealing something completely different today than he was revealing up to this point. And so... um, so the Theo defines it, it's the cause to give life. Uh, we're going past that. So before the impartation of life, believers were dead in trespasses and sins. Notice in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Now, th- here's a good example to understand what death is. That death is separation. And so from the time that Adam... Uh, and Eve were separated from God, men were born into this world spiritually dead. We were separated from God. And that's the condition of every unsaved man out there in the world today. They are separated from God. They are dead as a doornail. They are spiritually dead. And I don't care how elegant they come across as being. I don't care how smart they are. From God's point of view, they are spiritually dead. And so notice, you see it used here, and this is what we were before we were saved. Ephesians chapter 2. And you who were, uh, he hath quickened or made alive. And really it's a, um, it's a verbalist clause there. Uh, who being dead in trespasses and sins. And here's a verse that I, again, like to point out. You notice something here? You have two things that are different trespasses, and sins. And it shows you that not everything is a sin. Right? So you have trespasses. Trespasses are offenses and sins. And so notice, uh, you see it again, and we'll read down through six. Wherein in times past you walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh already is energizing in the children of disobedience or the mature sons of disobedience. So Satan has certain ones. All of the the unsaved that are born into this world are born into the family of Satan. All of them. But certain ones, he gives authority and power, and he energizes in them. Some of the ones down on the bottom, have you ever gone into some of these inner cities? Satan couldn't trust some of those people with his empowerment. There are certain ones he will empower in and they look like the real thing. And they're able to do things that a a believer cannot do. Now, we see that even in Luke chapter eight, uh, I think it's 16. They could do things and a believer cannot do. So, you know, in the world system, they say, be like Mike. The Holy Spirit's not going to make you jump like Michael Jordan. (laughs) He's not. That's not the point of what he's doing here. And so they are able to do. These guys are really interesting people. And so notice among whom also we had our conversation or our routine manner of life 
in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as others. In other words, if God had come at that time, that that wrath was hovering over our heads and potentially we could have that could have happened to us. though It wasn't going to happen. Right. But we were just like they were. We were seen as being in the same boat as they were. We were dead just like them. And so here you have something very interesting here. Verse four. Just two of the greatest words in the New Testament. But God. Who is rich in mercy for his great love when he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you having been saved and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So he delivered us out of a dead situation. And this would be kind of likened to you finding some bomb on the street that was just horrible and despicable. And you said, come go home with me. Wow. <laughs> I saw some eyes raised there. I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you part of my family and you're going to live with me. And you just take him home and he's able to go through the shelves and, and whatnot. And so you have changed that person's life. God took us when we were dead. We weren't righteous. He wasn't looking for the righteous. And so that's the thing. And so and then the Holy Spirit was the one that made us alive together with Christ. And that idea of that soon preposition where we're made alive together with Christ and identified together with him. Those who believed upon Christ would have rivers of living waters. We saw that back in John seven. The outworking of the Holy Spirit's ministry in this dispensation is distinct from other dispensations. And the Holy Spirit indwells every believer today. And so we all who believe the facts of the gospel are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so notice over in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 5. Now, in 2 Corinthians uh, f- uh, 5, no, that's not the right one. It's, let's try 8, um, the, the eight um, sec- uh, Romans 8, 9. Uh, now, notice, uh, let's see. Start at verse uh, five for they that are after the flesh. Now, I hear he's talking about those who are unsaved. They reflectively think on the things of the flesh. And so the unsaved man. And so here we are. We're trying to talk to these unsaved people about spiritual things. They don't have the capability of understanding what you're saying. It's like you're talking to somebody who's deaf and mute. And you're trying to talk to them about spiritual. They don't understand what you're saying. I think about that movie with Chris Tucker on it where he says, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? No, they don't understand it. They do not understand what you're saying. Only the Holy Spirit could actually uh, interact and to make them alive to be able to understand that. But an unsaved man is not going to understand. And I think the reason that we think differently is because they can actually memorize things. They could talk about scripture, 
a lot of them can probably know scripture better than some believers do. But they don't understand it. And so notice, uh, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded are really the result of reflecting your thinking on the things of the, of the flesh is death. But the result of being spiritually minded, a result of framing your mind on the things of the spirit, notice what it produces, a quality of life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to a law from God, neither indeed can be. So they that are in the flesh, notice here, cannot please God. All of the stuff the unsaved people do, God doesn't want that. I don't care how sincere it will be, it may be. I don't care what the motivation is behind it. If they're unsaved, that is not something God is going to accept from them. Well, he doesn't even under, accept these sacrifices of the believer if you were doing it out of, the car, out of a, a carnal motivation. And so notice, verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. And that um, uh, is housed in you, that word dwelled as orke. Uh, He's housed in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, notice what happens. He is none of his. So remember, see the line of demarcation here? Back in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go on these Old Testament saints. So there were periods in times where, say, Saul or um, Samson could say they didn't have the Holy Spirit with them. But they were still believers. But today, in this dispensation, in relative to what the Holy Spirit is doing, if you don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you're unsaved. Why? We're sealed by, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It is a mark of the fact that you and I belong to God. And so the Holy Spirit is in each and every believer. And so... Uh, those who were initially filled by the Holy Spirit were filled differently, and, and we talked about that from the day of Pentecost. The reception of the Holy Spirit is a subject that highlights the transitional nature of the dispensation of grace from the day of Pentecost to the present. The Holy Spirit fell upon those that were present in the upper room in the day of Pentecost. Peter later, in his message to those in Jerusalem, encouraged them to repent and be baptized in order to receive the Holy Spirit. The believers at Samaria needed the apostles to lay hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit. And Cornelius' household had the Holy Spirit fall upon them as Peter spoke unto them. And so you see there's a, it wasn't a consistency in how things happened. And I believe that the, how you can account for that is the progressiveness of what God, God's revelation and what he was doing and bringing the different the groups into uh, the body of Christ. And so uh, this was the first time the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit. It was the reception of the Holy Spirit that led the Jewish apostles to conclude that God had granted to the Gentiles to receive the Holy Spirit as he had uh, uh, given unto them. Now notice, and you can see that in Acts chapter 15 and verse 8. So Paul in that first church council went to that council and he was telling those at the church uh, council how they had 
this ministry among the Gentiles and that they had received the Holy Spirit. And so this was a important line of demarcation uh, to those were, who were at this first church council. <clears throat> In Acts chapter 15, let's go back in verse um, 2. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And the question was whether or not they should be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Verse 3, And being brought on their way to the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and the elders, and they declared all the things God had done with them. For there arose certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders came together to, for, to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, or really debating, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God made a choice among us, and that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of, God, of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them what? The Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us. And so this signified, and this was something that the Jews could see that was a line of demarcation at whole. They got the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, just as, just as it happened to us. Notice, just hold your finger, uh, actually, you don't even have to hold your finger there. Turn back to Acts 11. And you see this happened in, uh, happened in uh, Acts 11. Uh, and notice that as Peter is talking to these uh, Jews who questioned him for going into Cornelius' house, uh, he said in verse 14, Who shall... Uh, Tell thee the words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. He's talking about Cornelius. It's uh, saying Peter would do this. Verse 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us at the beginning. What beginning? Already a beginning going back to the day of Pentecost. Right. And notice. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's what he was talking about. You go back. Remember, we looked at John um, and back in Matthew 13. And he says that he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, never happened during Christ's earthly ministry. Here you see it. Right. For so much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. What was I that I could withstand God? And so this was a pivotal point for the Jews to be able to accept the Gentiles into the body of Christ. They could not deny the fact that they had received the Holy Spirit in the same way that they believed they uh, received the Holy Spirit. 